Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's current in the world of romance. Today, we discuss Adam Levine's sex scandal, what actually constitutes a sext, and why famous men are so very bad at writing them. Then it's time for The Love Story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be talking about the love affair between Miles Davis and Juliette Greco, a torrid affair that turns into a lifelong friendship. Two very cool people go through a lot, and we discuss what is cool, is it possible to still be cool, and we all reveal that we're very uncool as we do a little jazz. I apologize in advance. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. In this episode in particular, we discuss domestic violence and addiction. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. Uh, Okay, guys, so I know this is a little bit of an old story. I mean, it happened a few months ago. But (laughs) nevertheless, I read this week that uh, apparently Adam Levine off of Maroon 5 Mm -hmm. is recommitting to his partner. Bahati Prinsloo. So, I mean, I'm guessing that uh, you know why they were no longer committed to one another, why this recommitment had to happen. I do, I think. But do you want to tell us? Because you have notes on it, I believe. So this was to do with the reason that they split up was because of Adam Levine's sexting scandal, which basically I think any opportunity to revisit, I think that we should. Are you aware of the sexting scandal? The last thing I heard about Adam Levine was he maybe did the Super Bowl. And before that, I hadn't thought about him. Okay, Rachel, strap yourself in. (laughs) You are going to love this if you don't know about this already. Because, as I say, any opportunity to revisit it, it should be grabbed by both hands, so to speak. So, (laughs) basically, um, Adam Levine... I don't know if he had an affair with this woman or what exactly. It was a, I think she was a model, like an online model. Like, I think not only fan, I'm not sure. I don't want to say exactly who she was or anything like that. But the point is, there was a woman called Sumner Stroh who um, Adam Levine saw some pictures of and thought they were pretty sexy. And um, he got in contact with her and they started to share some share some sex. He said, she will be loved. <laughs> if only he had now. <laughs> I actually think I should just go home from it. It's, that is a peak. I, I can't believe I pulled that out of my memory bank. She will be loved. Instead, so do you want to hear some of the uh, the sects that Adam Levine sent this? Uh, that's this the only thing I want to hear. <laughs> yeah. No, Rachel's like, actually, no, that's fine. Well, let's move on. So I think the most famous one was, I may need to see the booty. I mean, it's not a sext more. <laughs> it's right, it's not mean... a sext so much as it is a cry for help. Yeah. Like an a English person making a demand. <laughs> well, that's the way that I said it. <laughs> Disregard the accent, <laughs> but I was gonna say, it does feel it does feel like kind of in the same vein as um, Charles talking about? I, I wish I was your tampon. It's 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 intimate, and yet the way that the request is phrased makes you cringe a bit. Yeah, I, yeah. I would like to see what is it? I need to see your. Booty? I may need to see you. I, I may need to see the. That's the problem. The verb is all wrong. The Camilla Charles thing, I've always found a little bit touching because it's very clearly somebody who's just never been taught to express emotions in any way and who's trying to come up with a sexy metaphor without any real world training. In this case, all he's saying is just, I want to see your butt. Like, this, I don't find this no, it's sexy like, or moving. <laughs> I'm just going to carry on. I mean, okay. I mean, the other one would be, um, how are you such an hourglass? Um, 
That's just kind of a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I guess. There was no question mark at the end of it, which is interesting. It's sort of rhetorical. I'm really trying to figure out why the phrasing of these questions is sending me. How are you such an hourglass is such a bizarre... It wouldn't be so bizarre if he just said, Wowza, what an hourglass. <laughs> but how are... How? You know, like, how were you constructed? How could you... How could one be such an hourglass one asks of the gods, you know? There's something about it. There's a reason why this man is a lyricist. What else? What else? It is truly unreal how fucking hot you are. <laughs> I moved. I, I'd expect- I moved. I moved. <laughs> I, grieve, already- I grieve for today's generation. <laughs> He's already given us girls like you. I, I mean, the, the man can't not be everything to us. He's, he's given us our anthems. Okay, and here's a spoiler. She, she did show him the booty. And um, his his response... Hard selfie to take. <laughs> <laughs> but his response to uh, her showing him the booty was about the booty. I'd do anything for it. I'd buy it a steak dinner and whisper sweet nothings to it. I, I don't have words. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> no words? <laughs> this hypothetical booty has gotten... <laughs> So much more than so many other women in the world. Like a steak dinner (laughs) devotion. This potentially to be shown to him booty has received more than many people on their first dates. (laughs) Steak dinner though. (laughs) Yeah, like I can't help just going down to the literal meaning and being like, you want to feed her ass? (laughs) (laughs) That's your seduction message. I'm going to feed it, then I'm going to eat it. (laughs) Over and over and over again. Eating it, I could understand in a sex, but like feeding it, that's <laughs> that's the part for me that I'm I just, I have this image of Adam Levine at a table with a kind of like nice candle in the middle and there's just, there's just the booty on the other side. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, so this is, are these really embarrassing or are just sects or, you know, expressions of love in text form are they just inherently an embarrassing thing? Okay, I do want to say that this is, in my view, neither sex nor expressions of love. <laughs> this is something weird in between. We need another word. Like a sex, yeah, we, we do. The English language does not have vocabulary for this. This isn't like, I'm touching you here. Look at my anatomy, you know, etc. I do love those sex. <laughs> You know, and, and then like an expression of love, I I think we should all be able to imagine that. Yeah. This is neither of those two things. Well, I'm saying that whatever this is. So there was another one, which so I, I did a little bit of um, research as well and found out other famous, I'm going to put heavy quotation marks around this, sects, which have been sent from famous people. One which I really liked was uh, one from Salman Rushdie, of all people. Oh, goodness. This was to a woman, I think she was like a around the age of 23, a 23-year-old model called Devorah Rose. I don't know if you've heard of her. Much younger and, if I were to make a value judgment, much hotter than Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. Um, Ooh, and how would it be possible? <laughs> We've all seen Bridget Jones's diary. We know the man is hot. <laughs> and after a, a little bit of a back and forth, he sent her... You look so gorgeous and hot. On the same level as Adam Levine. What is with these men? (laughs) Winner of the Booker of Bookers, Salman Rushdie. (laughs) That's it. Mm. To, you know, to go back to your original question, Chris. There, wait, no. Were you gonna were you gonna read a couple more? No, that that, that that's, that's that's more or less what I've got, unless I pull out my phone. Okay. <laughs> to read other ones from the internet. It does feel so humiliating. Part of it is that these. Let's go to back to Adam Levine. He's married. And on top of that, Adam Levine has was one of the original wife guys. He wasn't just someone who had a beautiful wife and they walked on the red carpet. He was almost embarrassingly supportive of her doing her fucking job. He would and he was kind of the the Justin Timberlake making it all about himself, clapping, Woohoo, my wife is so hot. One of those. So then to have these sexts in big air quotes, come about because we still have not figured out the word that we really should be using. There's that that's embarrassing. So it's the it's the cheating or it's the publication of that. So it's embarrassing, it's humiliating. But yeah, these sects are really weird sounding. And I just don't know if that means that there's no way to put in text form that someone is physically attractive in a way that wouldn't... Is there a way to do that that isn't cringe-inducing? Perhaps not. 
this to me is earnestness that's trying to get to actual sex. You know, this is like, it's, it's trying to be seductive. It's trying to open up that conversation mm -hmm. in a way, but, but I, f I feel like it's really fascinating that these very well written, well spoken men just have no other way than being like to do that mm. than to be like, I like your booty. Tell me what you want to do to my dick. I, I just want to jump off that. Well, first of all, I want to say these well these well-written whatever you... I mean, I think that applies to me to Salman Rushdie. Definitely does not apply to Adam Levine. So let's just take that off the table. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. <laughs> I actually... Hold on. A, a caveat. I used to... The place that I used to work, there was a woman who was working there and anytime She Will Be Loved came on, she used to go... It's not always rainbows and butterflies. It is compromise which moves us along. <laughs> Literally every time. <laughs> I take it back. You're absolutely right. No, no, no. I was wrong. Let me uh, let me apologize. I'm saying they have both written things no. that have moved people, different people probably, on different right. levels. No, it's true. It's but, true. Uh, who have somehow made people feel things. But I wonder if, because what you said made me think, is it also the pretense of these men and these messages trying to come off as if, wow, you are so hot. Your hourglass booty is so amazing that I'm speechless. Like I, I have to put it into this awkward phrasing because I'm defenseless. I've lost all words. I've lost all language. And so it's almost supposed to be play acting a kind of, you know, defenseless innocence in the face of your booty, my face in your booty. I can't, I can't even use language that is actually normal and adult. <laughs> I want to take it for a steak dinner. <laughs> I, is that part of, is that supposed to be part of the charm? But it's also like these are models. You think that they don't know that they have like nice asses, like that they have nice hourglass yeah. forms. They know. Why are you, it's like somebody trying to seduce me by being like, hey, like you, you wrote a nice sentence. It's like, thanks. That's my job. I do that literally all day. I'm sure you'd appreciate that. I was going to say, if someone said that to me, I depending on the person, but also I think of the three of us, I am the most susceptible to compliments and flattery. So if someone said to me, wow, your hair is really short, I would fall to the ground and go, thank you. You've noticed? Thank you, I do have abbreviated hair locks. You know, I just, I agree with you. And also compliments are awesome is really what I want to say. And I think that if I was Gigi Hadid, I still would want someone to say, damn, and I would go, thank you, my name is Gigi. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, so I did, uh, I, I read a few articles around this a little bit, and there is a really good one. I think it's in the cut in which they talk about the inherent embarrassingness of the sext because it is effectively a kind of like a teenage boy's move. So people are sort of questioning, why does he sound so much like a teenage boy? It's because he's operating in what is effectively a teenage boy's genre, which is somebody who is not having sex, but wants to have it. And so he's sending these messages out in the world. And so you're almost trapped by by genre. And is that the thing which makes it so embarrassing? Salman Rushdie, one, one time in his life, defeated by genre. <laughs> this is what took him out. Children's literature, not a problem. Fantastical storytelling, give me more. Sexting? Sorry, Sir Rushdie. He hasn't reinvented the form. Although he did put three T's on the end of hot. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> the, no, I, again, I don't think these are sex. Excuse me if I have an old-fashioned opinion here, but I think a sext is telling me what you want to do to my body and what you want me to do to your body. It is not just naming things that exist. I agree. And that's what, that to me is the weird. I love that as an old fashioned opinion. <laughs> In my day, a sex I'm was sorry, a sex. If I sound Maybe it was a dick pic. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry if I sound too much like Grace Kelly <laughs> or our listeners. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think what's weird and awkward about this is it. It is like a teenage boy who doesn't know how to open up like a conversation, like a sexual conversation. That's what's awkward about it. They don't know. I've, I'm repeating myself, but they don't know how to get into the sexting. So they're just stating facts. Right. Yeah, that's true. Listing things. Yeah. Some of these so-called sexting scandals are celebrities or famous, mostly men, I think, at least from my knowledge, who are trying to initiate 
as you said, Rachel, right? Like this is a really awkward, you know, attempt to enter into someone else's life. But I also think that we now use the word sext for things that don't cover it in the same way that now anything is a clapback. Even if it's just someone saying, I don't think so. Someone's like, oh, Rihanna's clapback, steaming hot. A lot of these things are words that we just now use for everything because we're lazy, because it kind of covers that ground. And especially if you're talking to someone of the same basic cultural background, they'll get it, right? And they'll kind of make the necessary adjustments of definition. But yeah, sexting, a sext is something very specific, actually. But I want to hear about the, this, uh, what is it, recommitment? Is it a vowel renewal? Oh God, I totally forgot about the recommitment. <laughs> renewal is it a vow renewal oh no i don't think so i think they set a press release just to say that they're recommitting to one another in the face of stuff i haven't really delved into that i was more interested in just i mean much like adam levine getting to the booty (laughs) (laughs) and now it's time for the love story so I was given the enviable task of bringing to our attention the love story that happened between Miles Davis and Juliette Greco. And to be very honest, I did not even know this was a love story until a week ago. I had no idea that they'd ever had an affair. So I'm going to start by just giving really quick biographical details for both of them. For those who don't know, Miles Davis is, even I, you know, a relative jazz newbie. Miles Davis is considered one of the most influential composers, band leaders, and jazz musicians of the 20th century. He was born on May 26th, 1926. Also a Gemini. Thank you for noticing. I was, I was, as I was kind of riffing to myself earlier, I was like, should I make the joke? Should I not? But then I was thinking one of us will. And I'm really glad. I'm really glad. He, you will find that he has fallen prey to a lot of Gemini traits. He was born to an affluent African-American family in Alton, Illinois, but he actually grew up mostly in St. Louis. His mother was a music teacher and a violinist. His father was a dentist. And he loved music from a really early age, especially the blues, big bands and gospel. And by 12, according to him, he wrote later, music had become the most important thing in my life. He received his first trumpet in in 1935. And one of the biggest influences of his life in his own words was someone named Elwood Buchanan, who was a teacher and a musician and was actually a patient of his father's as well. In 1941, he joins a marching band that was directed by Buchanan and enters music competitions, where, and later he'll say that he was absolutely discriminated against in those competitions because of because of his race. And I bring that up in particular because I think based on my research, Miles Davis has a really interesting re- kind of discourse about how race affects his music. And this is obviously my interpretation. I'm not saying this is fact. I don't know. But there seems to be a little bit, and I think it might be also the time period, of course, that he grew up in. There seems to be both a simultaneous desire to fully express how racism had limited him, but also wanting to make it clear that he's not actually limited by it. Like racist people might have tried to limit him, but that didn't stop me from doing what I wanted to do. So in the same article where or where he was interviewed and he was discussed how he was he was, he was the the victim of this kind of discrimination, he also said that those experiences actually made him a better musician. And I find that in a lot of Miles Davis's statements about racism, it was terrible, but actually this other thing came out of it that has benefited me. And I find that really interesting, the way that he places himself in his own narrative, right, which is quite complicated. Also, something to point out is that Miles Davis died quite young. He died at the age of 65, which is astonishing considering just how much he has done. I kept thinking, like, how old was he at this point? And it was just that he was, he loved music. He fully dedicated himself to it. And of course he was extremely talented. So still in the 1940s, he fills a vacant spot in what was known as the Rum Boogie Orchestra, also known as the Blue Devils, led by Eddie Randall, who's, if you are into American jazz, he's extremely famous as a trumpeter and orchestra leader. And he would later say that his job, because they made him the band's musical director really quickly even though he was just filling a vacancy. And he would later say this job was the most important of his career. He graduates from high school in 1944, which is also the year of the birth of his first daughter. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, exactly. Big year. And actually, every year of Miles Davis's life is a big year. Every time I'm like, how old, right? So then in July of 1944, Billy Eckstein, another big figure in American jazz, visits St. Louis with a band that includes Art Blakely, 
Dizzy Gillespie, and Charlie Parker. Their trumpeter was sick. Miles Davis is asked to fill in. He was 18. Imagine, imagine getting a call at 18 from, I don't know, Zadie Smith being like, hi, I'd love to collab. If, if you're if you're free, you know, my usual collaborator, she has the flu. What? So Maybe like, to do a podcast with Zadie Smith. Oh, I, yeah, we do. So he plays with this band for two weeks and decides afterwards that he's going to move to New York. Same year, 1944, he goes to New York and is accepted to Juilliard. Just to recap, Miles Davis has already played with one of his major idols, has been accepted to Juilliard and is the father of his first child all in this year and it's not even over we're not even we're in september this is when people usually start doing shit you know so he goes to new york and he attends juilliard kind of sporadically he misses most of his classes he spends most of his time first searching for his idol charlie parker and then after he finds him he joins kind of a loose group of musicians who hold jam sessions every night in harlem his wife, whose original name, unfortunately, is Irene Berth. So he's reunited with her and his daughter when they move to New York. At that time, he's living with Charlie Parker. And he's getting paid an allowance of $40 a week, which actually in 2021 dollars is 620 Not bad. For an 18-year-old who's just moved to New York, you know, he's got a lot of success. Mid-1945, he drops out of Juilliard to perform full-time. And this is another example of him kind of um, not reframing how race played a, a limiting role in his career, but he does say uh, years later that the school concentrated too much on classical European and quote-unquote white repertoire, but then praised the school for teaching him music theory and helping him improve his trumpet technique. To this day, a lot of times, whenever a black person in any field really does well, there's still this sentiment of natural talent that they were somehow born with it. And that actually happens a lot with music, not, I think, meant to be in a racist way. Oh, that's in their culture, right? They they dance well. They know music. It's in their bodies. So part of me also wonders if Miles Davis, on top of, of course, clearly being naturally talented, wanted to also make it clear, I was trained, right? Like, And at that time and to this day, a lot of times we only will accept training or education as being relevant or legitimate if it has been co-signed by a white institution. So I wonder if there's also that too. Him also struggling to say it's not just, and especially later on when his personal demons would kind of take over his narrative and kind of would obscure his musical talent. I wonder if that's him also trying to make it very clear. No, no, I'm good at this shit. I'm a trained ass musician, you know? In 1948, Miles Davis declined an offer to join Duke Ellington's orchestra, deciding instead to create the Miles Davis Nonet, a music ensemble of nine musicians. And they used atypical modern jazz instruments, and they were trying really hard to imitate the human voice with their compositions. In 1957, they have an album called Birth of the Cool. And then it's in May 1949 that he goes to Paris. He goes to Paris. He performs at the Paris International Jazz Festival. And he really loved being in Paris. And for the reason that a lot of black artists at the time did, he felt a distinct reduction in racism, basically. And he actually felt like people were listening to him and talking to him. And he would later say about the trip that it, quote, changed the way I looked at things forever. We'll obviously talk about this in numerous episodes, but this is not uncommon to black people of various professions and non-professions. Sally Hemings, when she moved to... Paris with Thomas Jefferson, uh, really for the first time considered leaving him and, you know, living free. Josephine mm -hmm. Baker, um, just to put in that it, it has historically had that appeal despite its very own internal conflicts. That's true. And I, <clears throat> we might get into this a little bit later on with Juliet, Juliet Greco. I think that that tradition and that history, which is, which is accurate, which is very, very true. And still, I think for a lot of black people that I've spoken to who live in Paris now there there's a sense of it's it feels freer here it feels like I can just be me but unfortunately what happens is that sometimes French people then take that and extend it to we have no racism here we are done 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 and actually Julia Greco later on when commenting on her relationship with Miles Davis would say I realized that in France we had no racism now not to blow your mind that's not true. <laughs> so just want to make it very clear. It's a different type of racism. And I think it's also much easier for us as human beings to appreciate something when it feels, so and I don't mean to make anyone, something or someone, 
it can feel less scary when it's totally exoticized. So for a black American to come to Paris at that time was not the same thing as someone from Cote d'Ivoire, someone from Senegal, someone from Morocco coming and also trying to establish a music career. There's not a history, right? And it's also... We always, I think every nation does this. We are always looking for ways to prove that we are better than other nations. And so for France at the time, it was, re- I mean, again, not to blow your mind, racism was really bad in America. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to leave off Miles Davis right here. So he's 23. He's in Paris. We're going to skip, go back in time a little bit to Julia Greco. She was born on February 7th, 1927 in Montpellier. Her father was of Corsican origin. Her mother was from Bordeaux. And she and her older sister, Charlotte, are raised by their maternal grandparents in Bordeaux after their parents separate. Both grandparents die in 1933. And their mom takes them, the two girls, with her to Paris. Where actually in 1939, Juliette, who was a dancer, who was mostly a dance enthusiast at that time, becomes a student at the Opera Garnier. But actually she's uh, a petit rat. A petit rat literally translates to a little rat. And Rachel, do you want to tell us a little bit about what that means? This just means that there's students at the ballet school for the National Ballet here in France. And they're known as that because they skitter around the (laughs) opera house, uh, around all of the professional dancers, because there are a lot of ballets that annoyingly need children in them. (laughs) And how do you know uh, so much about that, Rachel? Yes, I wrote a book on it. In fact, it is called The Ballerinas. But with the war, the family returns to southwest France, and her mother actually is arrested for her work with the resistance in 1943. Charlotte and Juliette take the first train they can to Paris, but they're actually followed by the Gestapo, and they're captured by them and taken to their headquarters in Paris. How old are they at this point? Juliette must have been 16 at this point. It's fair to say she's having a rougher year than Miles. Yeah, exactly. In different ways. Actually, like having a kid when you're 17 is not great. We're all contemplating, which is harder? And it's it's, it's not a fu- as fun a game as you might think it is. Would you rather be a black man in America in the 40s with the first kid? Or, so they're captured, they're taken to headquarters. Juliet is violently beaten. Again, she's 16 years old, but she manages to flush down the toilet the compromising documents that her sister was transporting for the resistance. That's so cinematic. Isn't it? And I had no idea. And I really love Juliette Greco's voice. I've seen some of her movies. I had no clue. So due to her young... So her mother and her sister are uh, imprisoned and deported to Ravensbrück. I don't know if that's a correct translation, but for those who don't know, that's a concentration camp for exclusively women prisoners. Due to her young, her young age, Juliette is let go. She gets her stuff from headquarters. This is actually in the 16th arrondissement of Paris. And then finds herself alone with no money, with just a metro ticket. She remembers, however, that she does know one person who lives in the city, and that person is Hélène Duc, who's a friend of her mother's and who had actually been her French teacher before the war. So then by 1945, she's 18 years old, and Juliette has become... Saint-Germain-du-Pré at that time was buzzing, right? It kind of reminds me of... Um, what Brooklyn was for a time in New York, what Camden was in London. It was a place that was kind of at this boiling point of intellectuals and political activism, largely led by the influence of the young communist movement. But at the time, you know, Juliette is not famous. She's acting in a few plays. She works in a radio program dedicated to poetry. And she's also become a muse to a lot of young artists, including Jean-Paul Sartre and Boris Vian. And as is commonly known, being a muse is a really high-paying job. Absolutely. And it's never, you know, you're never going to feel weird or humiliated. It's interesting that you can be a muse to a number of people at once. I mean, that there's no fidelity in musing. She was a muse to a lot of people. Serge Gainsbourg wrote a song for her. Uh, Jacques Prévert wrote a song for her. At a certain point, though, don't you think that... Because things normalize so quickly. So the first guy that wants you to be his muse, you're probably like, oh my God, amazing. The second guy, et cetera. And then this goes on and on. And you're probably just like, okay, though, could I fucking just do a movie of my own and not just be these fucking terrible men? Yep, yep. (laughs) Inspiration. That's it. You're just going to draw me as triangles anyway. I am not amused. (laughs) And that's it for this week. So (laughs) we'll always have parents. still gonna be here that's it for christopher jerome (laughs) so before i get to how they meet i want to kind of put this idea in the air which is that we're dealing with two people so at this so when she meets miles davis by the way uh juliette is 22 years old we're dealing with dealing with two people who are very cool and who are coded and but you know who are coded as being and i think that's interesting because 
at this point for both of them, they're uh, so Julia Greco is really not famous. Miles Davis, as as previously mentioned, has done quite a few things, but he's he has still so many landmark albums, compositions. He's ne- he's nowhere near as famous as he's going to be. And again, his incredibly filled but very short life. It's also like think about how good you have to be as a trumpeter mm-hmm. to be famous. I can name exactly two, and one of them is Miles Davis. Yeah. The other one, I think, is Louis Armstrong, and I'm not even sure he played the trumpet. It might have been the saxophone. He did play the trumpet, yeah. Ah, Bill Clinton played the saxophone. <laughs> yeah, I'll get them confused. <laughs> the only saxophonist, of course, I know is Bill Clinton. <laughs> but I think there's something to be said about, it, even without, like, Julia Greco, again, has really not, and she said, talks about this later on, too, how weird it was to be again, a kind of a fixation for people, even though she felt like she hadn't done that much. And it was, and they were both just in their different milieu. They were right in the epicenter of cities that were supposed to be kind of spawning culture in neighborhoods that were becoming really important, culturally speaking. And so when these two people meet, they're not as ahead in their careers as we might think, but they were already widely acknowledged as being the people that everyone wanted to know. Maybe not copy, maybe not emulate. So it's 1949, Miles Davis is playing with a quintet at the Salle Playel. The room is packed. And he's being watched in the wings by Michelle Vion, who is the wife of Boris, and Juliette Greco. And he's pulled in by her dramatic looks. She also is captivated. She says later on, I caught a glimpse of Miles in profile, a real Giacometti with a face of great beauty. And we'll say that sometimes Juliette Greco's um, descriptions of Miles Davis's face, I get it. It, it, but again, there's an exoticization going on, which actually goes both ways, uh, w- which we'll get into as well. So, because yeah, Giacometti is known for kind of his exaggerated facial that's shapes, it, exactly, and not you know necessarily for classical beauty, that's either it. male or female. Later on, she will also dis- uh, compare his face to an Egyptian death mask, and she couldn't have said Egyptian life mask. <laughs> Wait, did I miss the point? I might have missed the point. <laughs> you got it. That was my problem. That was that was it. Everything else is fine. So it's Michelle Vion who formally introduces them. Neither of them. So Juliet doesn't speak any English. Miles Davis does not speak any French. They immediately fall in love. Like, like this... they speak only in trumpet. Bum, 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 bum. Oh la la! Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's him speaking in trumpet and her speaking in ooh la la's. <laughs> Juliette later on says, it was me he loved, which made me happy. As in, like, you know, it wasn't because she was famous or she could get him anywhere. And I think they both felt really seen in a way that they couldn't feel in their usual context. So for Miles Davis, he was, of course, outside of the American context. And he was not just a black man. He was him. He was Miles Davis with his talent, with his beauty. Absolutely. And for her as well, instead of just being, oh, that, you know, the muse, right? The woman that we're all kind of obsessed with. We don't really, we don't really understand why because none of us really wonders why she's just there and she's pretty and she's you know petite well and it's hard for a trumpeter to have a mute <laughs> although we did a pretty good job you know with the conversation that they would have had so a famous anecdote from this meeting is that apparently according again to Juliette Jean-Paul Sartre asks Miles why don't you marry her when he's about to go, when he's on his way back to the U.S. That is such a bourgeois fucking question. No, so they've they've known each other for it's not. This isn't the night that they no. meet back. I think it's been a few weeks. Okay. Um, wow, a few weeks. Because Miles Davis is going back. Like they're the thing is also their love affair is not very long. It really is just the time that he's in Paris. At this point, he has two kids with Irene. There and she and the two kids are waiting for him back in New York, and Miles. Uh, apparently responded because I love her too much to make her unhappy. And the way that Juliet understands that is that he knew a black man with a white woman would never work in the U.S. Quote, he knew that I would be unhappy and treated like, so I translated from the French, but I want to keep this, uh, une pute de bas étage in America. So a whore of low standing in America. <laughs> a ground floor <laughs> prostitute. A lobby whore. <laughs> Um, and this will lead to another question later on, but I kind of raise my eyebrows at that. I do believe that for sure, Miles Davis understood that their relationship was not going to work, right? Like a interracial relationship at that time, not likely, especially with someone of his growing status and kind of profile. But you want to go move to France, yeah. move to France. It's also a great line though, isn't it? Oh, I love you too much to marry you. A part of me wonders if really when he said, I love you too much to make you unhappy, if it was also maybe Miles Davis acknowledging I'm not someone who can really be a full-time partner to someone. 
Miles Davis later on in his autobiography would say, music was everything to me until I met Julia Greco. She taught me what it meant to love someone or something other than music. Quote, Juliette was probably the first woman that I loved as an equal human being. Imagine being Cicely Tyson and hearing because that's so Miles Davis has had many had many very famous lovers, possibly the most famous, at least to me, would be Cicely Tyson. They were on again, off again. And it was a very long, very drawn out relationship for many, many reasons. But Um, it was in New York, so we don't care. Exactly. So we can't talk about it. So Greco is in New York on a tour. Uh, singing tour and she's staying at the Waldorf Astoria in New York and she invites Miles to have dinner with her there and it was a disaster oh, what is oh. my life though even a disastrous dinner at the Waldorf Astoria with a former lover like from a different country sounds so good compared to day job so I would agree with you except wait for it though it's a disaster not it's a disaster because the maitre d everyone at the restaurant makes it really clear that they cannot fucking stand that a white woman. And oh a black yeah, because it's the fucking Waldorf story on the fifties. So the maitre d makes no attempts to hide that he disapproves. No one serves them for over two hours, and apparently, when the servers finally came, they were throwing the plates at them. And uh, according to her, <clears throat> again, Miles called her later on in tears and said that he never wanted to see her again in America. And she would later on write an article for The Guardian where she would say, quote, I suddenly understood that I'd made a terrible mistake from which came a strange feeling of humiliation that I'll never forget. In America, his color was made blatantly obvious to me, whereas in Paris, I didn't even notice he was black. What saves that quote for me is the word humiliation, actually, because it makes me think that maybe, and again, I could be you know, wildly misinterpreting or reinterpreting what she really meant, but I wonder if a little bit, the embarrassment that she feels, the humiliation she feels is, I can't believe I didn't fucking get it. Mm. You kept telling me, you kept telling me, I'm an idiot. Yeah, but to live that experience. Right. Of course, of course you were right. Of course it was really fucking shitty. And I, and and maybe in her mind, she just, she was thinking, oh, it'd be, it might've been a bit uncomfortable. But he's, she, I don't think, maybe she couldn't have, and, and, you know, fair enough, right? This is a time when it is really hard to kind of get accurate information about places that are not right next door to you. Maybe the extent to which when he's talking about an interracial relationship, he's really saying, I could die, you could die. Right. It would have seemed overdramatic, right? Would have seemed like, come on, let's, we're, we're living in a civilization here. And then the last thing I want to say about the relationship is that even though, as I said, their, their affair really lasted just for the duration of Miles Davis's first visit to Paris, he would visit Greco anytime he went to Paris and they actually were lifelong friends. Um, she spoke to him just a few days before he died in the 90s. So it's in all things considered a fairly happy relationship, which actually leads me to my first general question, which is that, so I know very little about Miles Davis's music. It's, you know, I'm, that's my own ignorance. But what I do know, <laughs> I know something. <laughs> He was a a jazz musician, right? He plays the trumpet! (laughs) Wait, did you say that? You might have said that. First of all, not only did he revolutionize Black Ivy style, he did the soundtrack for Louis Mal's film Elevator to the Gallows in an absolutely revolutionary way, which is that he was on set and he'd watch each scene and then he'd improvise something, uh, the soundtrack to the film after watching Moreau and the various men, I don't even care who they were, (laughs) in this film. Uh, And so he was actually a film you know, score as well, just improvising on Louis Mal's set. I'm saying the same names over and over because I don't think I can emphasize to you how much these names mean to me. That's so cool. <laughs> that is really fucking cool. Dave, would you say it's worth it for those of us who have not watched? I'd say it has a, visually, it has a jazz aesthetic. So if you're in the mood, it's, it's a very... It's very French. It's, it's very... It's, it's, a lot of, it's, it's very Paris. There's a lot of going into bistros and uh, mm-hmm. like using the telephone in bistros. Yeah, we should have... The footage of him actually doing this record, because there's images of him doing the recording, and it's really cool because he's standing there in front of like in front of the projection and him just there on his own with the trumpet. It's um, it's pretty cool. Like, I mean. Yeah, that's fine. You tell it. <laughs> I was going to say how cool he looks. Look, we're just, we're riffing here. That's jazz, honey. 
oh, yeah, right. So what I wanted to say was that even though I know very little about Miles Davis's music, one of the few things I do know about him is that he was famously, infamously, again, not a great partner. This was probably for many reasons, one of which was that he had a heroin addiction for many, many years. And even when he wasn't on heroin, he was uh, an alcoholic. He did a ton of coke. So, you know, his he was temperamental to say the least. He also had really severe health issues for most of his life. So his medication would often kind of fuck with his mood. Also, he was in a lot of pain. Oh, yeah. So so all of this led to him also. And also, he was extremely physically abusive with almost all of his partners that we know about. Now, I I there's a lot to unpack here. But at least according to Julia Greco, that was never the case with her and Miles Davis. Now, to be fair, they were together for not very long in Paris. They're both very young. But also she's one, it seems to be one of the few women in his life whom he slept with that he was also friends with. And, you know, I gave that quote earlier. She was the first woman who I loved as an equal human being. And this is kind of an impossible question to ask slash answer, but I want to put it out there. How much do we think this is? Because from what I've read, Julia Greco is the only white woman that he was officially with. And she was French, not American. You know, and he was and also he was famously also a philanderer. He himself said that five days after he married Cicely Tyson, he was sleeping with someone else. Good quote, Miles. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This was not. And his publicist is like beating his head against the wall in the corner. And she invented media training right after that. He's like, we're not doing this shit anymore. (laughs) No more autobiographies. (laughs) Ghostwriters. Alert. Your line from now on is I like the trumpet and collared shirt. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. <laughs> to me, it's re- researching this, I almost kept waiting for the moment when, not, I mean, not wanting it, not, but kind of anticipating when he'd be terrible, right? When Julie Greco would be like, and, you know, of course I respect him, what a genius, but he was so, but really all of her quotes about him are lovely. And it's just so shocking to me because, again, his profile as a pop culture figure with literally every other gorgeous, famous black one he's with is physical abuse, addiction, being horrible, uh, leaving for long periods of time, not being very present as a parent as well. So, yeah, so I, I guess kind of opening it up like and, and kind of thinking also about to me what seems like a pretty clearly conflicted relationship, not with being black per se, but maybe how being black would be perceived by others. And because even with addiction, for example, he was basically outed by this by this magazine for his heroin addiction. And and that basically tanked his career for quite a while. Like he was still playing shows. But right. and he's like, when I shot up in front of you, I said it was off the record. Right, exactly. <laughs> and he apparently never forgave the writer for that. Hunter Thompson was like, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this is this this was someone who was bedeviled with these stories that really I mean, he still managed to come back, of course, and make amazing music that he still, some of his most famous albums were after that. But there are many, many years where he wasn't able to support his addiction with just music. So that he he was a pimp for a while. Yeah, no, like Miles Davis had a, and again, died at 65. That's what I'm saying. Reading his, reading just his Wikipedia page, you have to keep checking with yourself to see how old he is then, because it seems impossible that someone could have done all of that, suffered through all of that, accomplished all of that. In just 65 years. I think there's also an interesting thing because of because of the music that he's working in, which, you know, because it's jazz and because, I mean, I've listened to a lot of Miles Davis music, but like I don't sort... That makes one of us. <laughs> I, I, I don't put him into the, like, the same way, like the canon of pop music in the same way. So right. he kind of exists outside of time slightly for me as well because i you know or uh, more to the point i associate him with being a guy who was around in like the late 1940s early 1950s but uh, you know when i was like looking into a lot of his stuff and you start realizing well no like he he, you know he was performing up until 1989 like you know i think even beyond that and like changing every year and stuff like that but it's interesting how despite the fact that he was actually aiming to get a more popular crowd actually as the um the years went by the in my imagination at least he sits slightly outside of the latter half of the 20th century um that he's resolutely still kind of in that kind of like 1950s dynamic yeah and and didn't evolve so i don't know if that makes a difference as to all of the things that he's done in his life and you know what i will say that miles davis for me 
he's one of those figures, famous people, pop culture figures who are kind of in the realm of like almost like a Che Guevara where what they've done, a lot of people will have their posters, will have them on T-shirts. They are, they've become almost a brand, even Andy Warhol, right? Um, with uh, with the Campbell's Soup and the Marilyn Monroe images. If you, if you asked a lot of people who have the paraphernalia, what did this person actually do? Why are they famous? They might not know. And Name I, one Marilyn Monroe movie. Yeah, exactly. Ironically, Warhol would probably have loved that. Oh, I, that, absolutely. I think so, too. Uh, that wasn't not his point. Yeah. We're just saying. <laughs> but Miles Davis, to me, is it doesn't matter if you've never listened to jazz, you don't like jazz, you know who Miles You know that name, at least, in a way that other musicians... You know that he's cool. That's the one thing you know. Yeah. Well, except he's obviously not cool. But... But but he is cool in the and sense. He is cool. But he's I cool. just I, Miles Davis is he pretty much invented cool because it's questionable how well they actually knew one another. Right. That's it. Because I mean, like, not only obviously they they knew each other throughout their lives, but uh, as far as I understand it, I mean, Miles never learnt uh, French, and I don't think that Juliet Greco's English was particularly great. So, I mean, like, that initial meeting that they would have had backstage where they couldn't speak each other's language apart from trumpet and ooh-la-las. Ah, <laughs> um, uh, the universal languages. <laughs> it's basically the Esperanto of the late 1940s. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and so, the, I mean, when you don't know each other's language like that and you're only seeing each other occasionally, maybe they were... And this is complete speculation on my part, but maybe they were able to retain an idealized view of one another because the communication was yeah both limited in terms of time and then limited in terms of actuality so they could almost fall in love with each other's legends and what each one represented to one another at a certain point in their life and then not develop it so much going forward but then as i say i don't really know i think also that it's maybe easier to treat a person as precious if they're the only one. So for Miles Davis, maybe being with really gorgeous, I cannot emphasize enough how beautiful, how talented, how revolutionary almost every single black woman he ever dated or married was, but that was familiar. And there, what's that saying? Familiarity breeds contempt, right? So, and then for Julia Greco as well, I I wouldn't be surprised if she had never, ever before befriended a black man. I'm almost positive she never. Well, actually, you know what? While she was sleeping with Miles Davis, she did also have an affair with Quincy Jones. And apparently Miles Davis never really got over that. I don't really understand how that. But that's a busy three weeks. Exactly. And actually, we keep saying three weeks. I might be wrong about the time. I just want to get across that it was a short period of time. And we can use three weeks as kind of a like a shorthand for that. I don't think anyone's going to get too mad about that. But Miles Davis was a departure, right, from everything that she really had known. The Saint-Germain-de-Presse did not have people like Miles Davis around. But I wonder, again, if there, if if for both of them, the other person was so unique, was so different. And as you were saying, Chris, too, there was that language barrier. So there was always this feeling perhaps of enigma or mystery. I can never know the full extent of you. I don't know what your references are. I don't know what your life has been like. What's a Daffy Duck? <laughs> and I think, and that kind of leads me also into the idea, that idea of cool that we've been circling around for both of them. It's hard, it's hard perhaps for, at least for me, it was hard to kind of really grasp this. But in Paris at that time, Julie Greco was the coolest person, right? She she just embodied cool. And by the time, and then when people found out that she actually had talent, it was like, whoa, you're cool and you can sing and you can act. And Miles Davis just got there a little bit faster because he was so obsessed with music right away and he was really driven about that. But I read a quote, and I wish I had written down who had said it, but I'll paraphrase it, which basically that person was saying, Miles Davis embodied and invented cool and it nearly killed him in the process. And actually I should say for Julie Greco as well, this was not someone who had an easy life even after everything we've discussed. She attempted suicide. She had a lot of, she had a lot going on. These were both people who, emotionally perhaps didn't have much support didn't have much community around them partly because they were cool and the thing about being cool is that you're the only one it's it becomes less cool when everyone does the same exact thing so there's this feeling of isolation i think that both of them could really respond to in each other but that idea of being cool and especially being cool and super talented is there someone is there a couple like that now right like i can think of couples that are considered cool and celebrity celebrity whatever you call that but often they're not very talented. These are two extremely talented people who had this one-off love affair that turned into a deep friendship. But do we have anyone like that now in our 
in pop culture. Well, I just want to kind of like go back a little bit onto the idea of, but I'm, I'm going to take a solo here, okay? <laughs> Count me in. Are you, re- are you ready? Okay. <laughs> the idea of, of, of cool, I, like, so in preparation for this, I was listening to a few podcasts about the era and I actually listened to a podcast all about the idea of cool. Obviously, there's um, there's nothing less cool than listening to uh, like three right. academics going like, so I've written a book about the definition of cool. I mean, and uh, to, to add to that, I was on a cross trainer in the gym while I was listening to this. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah. Anyway, and in this podcast about being cool, one of the things they talked about was that cool in many ways was, I mean, all right, and I'm mixing this up a little bit, but was like an ultimate expression of existentialism, that it came from this notion after the two world wars that there had been a complete failure of ideology. And so what are you left with apart from individual expression? And the kind of the the idea of a cool person is somebody who is outside of society and yet is still loved by society at the same time mm-hmm. and is exerting themselves through art or through sex or just you know ah uh, when i've exerted myself through sex <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that, that miles davis and juliet greco are these two expressions actually of the the, the idea of of being cool is almost an ideological thing within itself and that they were these two you know, expressions of that. And so this being said, that really the 1950s was the birth of cool. And as with a lot of, and if you consider cool to almost be an academic movement, which again, not very cool, (laughs) um, but often, or a, a whole style, often the people who get in there at the beginning of the movement define it and are the best at doing it. And in fact, what you have following that is a, a gradual distillation or a, a, yeah, a, a diffusion, d- diffusion of, of, of what that means. So basically I'm saying that people have been getting progressively less cool since the 1950s mm. and that today I think it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult to be cool. Mm. That being said, if you can Maybe think for of- some of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, fine. <laughs> I think that now when someone in media or pop culture gets gets the moniker of being cool, the downfall is imminent. Mm-hmm. We don't let people stay just cool for long periods of time. There's almost always a backlash. And, I, and, and actually, I think speci- usually more for women. Like I'm thinking about someone like Jennifer Lawrence, who for, you know, two and a half weeks was cool and unbothered. And now... I, and a couple of days ago, I was reading an article about how she's trying to win her way back into our hearts with serious movie roles. I mean, the bitch has an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, you know, like cool doesn't work for that long. And I was thinking even about someone like because when I was thinking about the couple thing, I was thinking Beyonce and Jay-Z. And I guess that works. But then it's less. They are very cool. I mean, don't get me wrong. But I also think that what they're especially Beyonce, it's and I think this is quite smart of her she's almost transitioned from coolness into exclusivity, into mystery, remoteness, right? Beyonce's cool for me is Frank Sinatra cool, mm-hmm. which is iconic cool. There we go. And I feel like to cool today, and, and that's unusual today in that I feel like cool is an ever-moving target, which keeps shifting to the point where, like, uh, you know, for, for example, the coolness that we're talking about in the 50s and 60s, moved so much slower in terms of, you know, what was just outsider enough to be accepted. And again, the Jules book is Black Ivy about how Davis co-opted this Ivy style. And so he's dressed like the fanciest, richest, you know, blue-blooded Americans, you know, whatever that means, uh, at, at the same time that he is a black musician. So he's not only black, but he's an artist. But it's this, you know, it's this visual uh, signifier of being an insider at the same time that he is, you know, outsider. And, uh, you know, and the uh, same thing with Greco and her gender. And so it's, it's this, you know, these people who fit in in every way mm-hmm. except X. And culture is moving so slowly at that point, comparatively, that it takes a long time for that to shift and becomes almost a fixed truth mm-hmm. in the minds of that generation. I also wonder if 
to be cool on kind of a larger stage also requires reticence or silence. And so in a time period where you don't have, you know, the technology we have now, you know, it's not so easy. It's not like, you know, someone says something today and everyone knows about it tomorrow, right? This is, it takes, as you were saying, Rachel, it takes longer to get to know who's cool or not. And then by the time everyone figures it out, we've moved on. But that was a slower process back then. But also it wasn't like, you know, Miles Davis wasn't tweeting anything. So when people did hear about what he'd said, it was either in his own words, like through his autobiography, or it was through magazines that you were only going to buy and read if you were really enmeshed in that scene. And then to go back to the Beyonce and Jay-Z example, what Beyonce has done and is that she basically, she she no longer does interviews. If she's ever, whenever she is quote unquote interviewed for a magazine, she basically writes small, it's basically like a short answer essay test. But I think it's quite smart and really, it's 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 really shrewd. And I, I know that sometimes shrewd has a negative connotation. I don't mean that it's all positive for me to realize the art will speak louder if I don't kind of muddy the waters with my own, with another text. There's an interesting thing that to to kind of go back to like sort of what we were saying earlier as well. Like you guys are not so familiar with like the actual work of Miles Davis, but you're aware of him mm-hmm. as an individual and a figure kind of throughout the 20th century. And I think that when it comes to being ideas of cool no one's that cool when you start like looking too closely at them because we're all imperfect and you know and and have anxieties and all this sort of like stuff like that but he has succeeded in being a huge figure in a a musical genre which is widely regarded as being great even if people don't necessarily know that much about it and so they're able just to consider him as an icon rather than look at all of the specific things that that he did. And so you just get the, the peaks of of coolness without having to look beneath the sunglasses almost. Oh, and yeah. and that, But that idea of becoming an icon is so fascinating to me because what's the difference between Miles Davis and Louis Armstrong? Mm. In my mind, I know about as much as either one, about either one, except I do know that Louis Armstrong did High Society with Grace Grace (laughs) Kelly because I'm a fangirl, but... Well, no, but I think that, like, Louis Armstrong is more... I mean, I wouldn't. He's he's more ensconced in the mainstream, or at least sort of why? Was at the time. How? Well, because I think that jazz had sort of like split slightly, and I mean, as you say, he's doing stuff with Grace Kelly, and he's in famous films, and that music is sort of part of the whole like easy listening genre, basically. But I'm 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 saying that I think that Miles Davis was still more part of a just a, a slightly less mainstream movement and it's associated with classical music and people don't quite know how to engage with it in the same way but they know they should engage with it mm. and whereas Louis Armstrong he's I mean I don't know so much about him but I would imagine that he's slightly linked to the studio system and sort of like more kind of like big music labels and stuff like that and also there's a degree that I think I mean that most people would say that Miles Davis was much more revolutionary than Louis Armstrong was. But you are right. Like even from, as I was saying, even early on in his career until much, much later, that is the thing that I, that kept coming up, even for people who didn't like how he played, who didn't think he was that great of a musician. No one could deny that he was trying different things, right? He would, as you were saying, Chris, also he reinvented his style continuously, was always pushing himself. And I think that, with his addiction, one of the hardest things actually was not losing fame or celebrity. It was that he lost the ability to play. He actually had to kind of regain his mobility to be able to play the trumpet again at the level that he was able to because he stopped playing for such a long time. So so there is, um, again, I'm not a music expert at all, but that does seem to be obviously like a huge component of what makes him Miles Davis is that he he really loved what he did and he wanted it to be better. And he, wa- he wanted to be better at it, but not in the way that had already been, not using the path that had already been established ahead of him. And there are also these brushes with kind of the darker elements of human nature. Right. And uh, as any goth kid in high school will tell you, what's cooler than that? Yeah. As longtime listeners know, this would usually be the point of the podcast where we play Mary Fuck Kill. 
applying the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. Unfortunately, the person in charge of our technology, me, uh, messed up this week and recorded over the absolutely delightful uh, section that we created for you. I will say that the characters were The Beatles, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Miles Davis, and for the first time in We'll Always Have Paris History, we had a unanimous verdict. If you're playing along, you probably already guessed what it is. We all agreed that we would marry the Beatles, fuck Miles Davis, and kill Jean-Paul Sartre. So I hope you're in agreement with us. Reach out, let us know if you're not. In the meantime, that was this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. Thanks for joining us and see you next week.